Oh, I see a hurley being made in the distance. Close to where the GA was founded in Thurlis. Uh, going to meet a young man who's both a, a great hurler and a maker of hurleys. Morning. Ronan, hello. How's things? Good. <laughs> Just outside Thurlis in County Tipperary, I meet Ronan Maher, hurley maker and vice-captain of the Tipperary hurling team. I saw the pallets, I saw the boards, I said, that's the, that's the spot. How are you? How are you doing? Good to see you. Ronan's workshop is in a large garage next to his family home. He's surrounded by wood chips and dust, sanding machines and a vice. A large stack of ash planks is piled high at the garage door, waiting to be transformed into handcrafted hurls. Right, so this is a bale of planks here, Irish ash, like we said. So if I'm making a senior hurley, I tend to try and pick one with a really good grain. So we grade our planks between seniors and juveniles. So this is going to be a senior plank. I'll draw out early on this, so if a customer asks for a pattern, I'll put the pattern down this plank and draw it out. Ronan outlines the shape of a hurley in pencil on the plank of ash. I bring it over to the bandsaw then. Um, I cut out the shape of the hurley and then I'll try and tin it down with the blade. Ronan now has what looks like a very rough hurley, which will be further planed and thinned out in several very loud steps. I have the muffs on, so it's... it's I oh, yeah, you make sure you have the ear protection. I have the muffs and, on yeah, and I have the yeah. mask on because you can see it's oh, really yeah, dusty around dusty here. As well, yeah. It's a good sign of work, though. Then, in the last few steps, Ronan uses a hand rasp to refine and perfect the shape. So, put that in the vice there. Like I was saying, I like to work on the handle here with the spoke shape, rounding the edges and taking the thickness out of the handle. Some people like a flat handle, some people like a round handle, and some people like a smaller handle. And I can adjust it every time to the to, to my hand, you know, so... So they're bespoke hurlies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of people do use machines, but I like to use do everything by my hand here because it's all in my control, if you know what I mean. But there must be great satisfaction for you as well. There is, yeah. In, in bringing that individual hurley. Yeah, exactly. And I know how picky life. people can be now, especially youngsters and myself, I'd be very picky with a hurley as well. So it's great to, I suppose, satisfy a customer, like you said. Um, so I'm all about quality rather than quantity, so which is really good. Ah, yeah, I think you're um, a bit of an artist of the hurley. Oh, I don't now. know about that. <laughs> you're listening to The County Measure. I'm Vincent Woods. We're making a journey around Ireland 100 years after independence and partition to get a measure, to get many measures of all 32 counties. We're looking at place, landscape and the people who shape their lives within these boundaries of community and county. In this series, I'm hoping to get a fresh understanding of each county and its people as we shape a radio atlas of Ireland. Tipperary connects Munster to Leinster and Connacht in its land borders. And through the GAA, it connects all the counties. The Gaelic Athletic Association, famously founded in Hayes' Hotel in Thurles in 1884. Hurling and football are strong here. Everywhere you see children sporting hurleys like an extension of their bodies. And for Ronan Marr, the game is something of religion for him and his family. I think everybody in town, it's the talk, the first thing they say to you is it's hurling. When you go to school, they play hurling, you know, so... Yeah, so. it was really nice to see the youngsters walking around in Thurles, you know, with a hurley under their arm. And yeah, it's like a culture, I suppose. Like, they don't go yeah. to school without it. It's like, it's like bringing their books, yeah. you know, so the hurling helmet. Yeah. Were you playing hurling from very young? Oh, I was, yeah, I suppose. Especially in this house and the house next door. My Uncle Paddy's next door and... Um, we would have been brought to Turles Hogue inside in town here um, from the age of six, you know, all the way up. So um, moving on to Turles Arceys then. And even our school, Turles CBS, has a huge pride in, in hurling and GEA. So it would have been in our... It's nearly in the DNA, yeah, isn't it? So GEA and the DNA. Making hurlies, you wouldn't even look like... It doesn't, I don't even look at it as a job, you know. It's more of a hobby than, yeah. and I love really doing it. So yeah, it's great. A labour of love. And run, on average, how long would a hurley last? See, it's, that's a difficult question because... 
now like the ash has been knocked a lot earlier so it's fresher and stuff so hurleys are inclined to break but if people look after them I remember when I was here my father used to have me hanging the hurleys up on that clothesline there in front of you he said leave that now for two weeks let it rain down and everything and let the hurley dry out but um, I think that day is gone now youngsters want the hurley you know, want straight to play out straight away okay. but, it's, you can but of get course them. that makes sense it was literally weathering the yeah, hurley exactly, yeah, yeah exactly and letting the, the timber dry out because after all that's after being cut out of a full plank so it has to get time to season but uh, like, like I said all hurleys they last different lengths of time people love to get them repaired then so I'm using the same hurley there for the last year and a half and I'm a hurley maker and they'd be all saying you must have a hundred hurleys <laughs> and I only have three or four you know so um, I like to use the same hurley over and over you know and it's all about getting to a habit and, and what is it about that hurley that's particular for you? It's just the weight, I suppose. I use a heavy hurley myself, and I always put two hoops on it. So I suppose over time you just get so used to it then, and it grows, and then to feel you know what you have in your hand the whole time, and you're confident going out and match day then as well. You know. It's Kilkenny versus Tipperary. The Cats against the Premier. Black and amber, blue and gold. The All Ireland hurling final 2019 is up and running. Brilliant hoop there. It was Ronan Maher with a brilliant hoop, and Colin Felly. The goal was on, and James Owen. And he leads by example. Each town in Tipperary is particular and distinct. Clonmel with its medieval street plan, the diversity and openness of care, the fume and traffic of Cashel and Tipperary Town and Nina. And each town too has its own mix of fine old shop buildings, some iconic and vibrant, others coming to the end of their commercial lives. Here on the very busy Parnell Street in Thurleth is the main road between Limerick and Nina and constant flow of traffic through and close to Semple Stadium and uh, we're visiting a family whose shop has just closed. Fogarty's is an old-fashioned shop the size of a small living room with the counter on the right and shelves now all but empty around the walls. Jared, how are you doing? Uh, good to meet you, lovely to meet you. And inside we meet Ger Fogarty, son of proprietor Josie, one day after the official closing. Oh, gosh. Clearing the shelves. Yeah, lots of history being taken down gosh. here since... Uh, here since 1956. 1956, that opened early 1956, yeah. Amazing. Oh, there's such a lovely feeling still, it, you know, this old shop feeling here. Yeah, very nostalgic taking yeah. them taking down. Yeah, We'd, uh, we were very busy last night. Uh, people, well, a lot of well-wishers. Well, throughout the whole day yesterday, a lot of well-wishers coming in and um, people send their regards and best wishes. And there, of course, there's people that had to get the last few penny sweets. Uh, <laughs> this, this shelf is a bit scarce there. Yeah, because Fogarty's was famous for its sweets, wasn't it, for the penny sweets? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'd be missed by a lot of school kids now in September when they go back or late August. I mean, if you if you were here on, uh, during a school rush, three or four o'clock, you did a uh, five of them come in, drop the hurl and helmet, and uh, get their sweets, go <laughs> to the counter to pay for their sweets. Yeah, but it must have been a lovely way to grow up, get Absol- up working at the shop. And, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, you meet people on the street, and they're saying, "You don't know me. I I know you, and <laughs> I know you since you could just about put your head above the counter." And uh, you know, growing up in a in a business, you're part of it really you're did you you grew up over the shop yeah so uh, my, my sister's just coming down the stairs there now so we're, we're still li- we're still living here mum uh, mum lives lives here my sister and I just live down the road so oh, there's six of us in the family we all living around Turles and you're closing really because your mum wasn't able to keep it going anymore she had a stroke and yeah. and it was with you, you all have your own lives and jobs and you can't do it yeah and we're we're very uh, lucky that she's recovering so well and um, but uh, unfortunately we, we now need to, to adapt the shop uh, to, to her to new bedroom and, and uh, an ensuite suite for her so she'll have a living area here yeah. on the ground floor she'll even be close to the shop she'll be, <laughs> she'll be sleeping in it so the one, the one thing she just about didn't do over the last 50 years she'll be doing for the rest of her life yeah. but she did long shifts here didn't long she long shifts getting up 7 o'clock in the morning pottering around every day doing um, the housework doing stocking minding the shop coming out customers you know we still have nightmares going to bed at that, that doorbell going you have to drop whatever you do go out to serve your customer because yeah. if people coming with 
big orders, wouldn't you, at one point? Absolutely. Uh, used to be a place to do your weekly shop. Dad used to do a lot of deliveries. I remember my Saturdays we would go out to villages, Ballycal, Holy Cross, delivering we, the weekly shop to, to people. They, they, they might come in on a Thursday, drop in their list, and we'd push together and come out. So so the click and collect was uh, yeah. not, not invented by Tesco's. <laughs> an early version. Of an early version the original of click and collect, and collect. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the hardest thing at times is um, making sure there's somebody behind the counter uh, all, the, all the time. And, you know, Mam would have made an awful lot of sacrifices uh, for that. Uh, Another customer. My, no, it's my, my sister, Trisha. Hello. Hiya, Trisha. Hello. Yeah, hiya. Vincent, Vincent how you doing? Nice to meet you. Good, nice good, good. She's another, yeah. another shy one. Yeah. You, oh, won't hear, shy. you won't hear anything out of her. Yeah. Uh, it's lovely, this sense of the, of the family still here. Yeah. You know, of all of you gathered oh, around. Oh, it's still a uh, hope for the family. We've been popping in and out. It's, it's great. For the last six months, my, my sisters have been able to work from home. So it's been easy, easier that way to, to split days and do do different days each and to get the door covered. But as I was saying, Mam uh, would have made a lot of sacrifices. You know, not just a lot of things she just couldn't go to that she'd been invited to or she'd never miss Sunday Mass, of course. Her only treat to herself really was her getting her hair done. <laughs> An important treat, very yeah. important treat. Will you miss the shop, all of you? Um, well, we've said it, it's, it's bittersweet. I mean, um, it was a difficult decision to make. For years, it was Mam's labour love, and we said we'd support her as long as as long as she could do that. And when it came to her to retire, then that position changed. And um, you know, it's it's not a business that's closing down; it's a business that's retiring. I know some places struggle and keep pushing it till the end, but um, it's a good time now for us to. to and close. is your is your mum Josie recovering well? From She's doing the fantastic. Yeah, so she'll be coming home in a few weeks' time, and we'll have to shop repurposed, and that'll be her her home part two a new a new nest here yeah a new yeah. nest yeah and, it'll uh, st- still be the family hall people coming in and out and and she can look forward to a retirement here yeah absolutely Watching the steady flow of the beautiful River Shore here in Clonmel. Lovely stone bridge not far away. Clonmel is an old medieval town, striking and beautiful in parts. The main shopping streets, colourful and well-maintained. I'm just thinking about how, really how beautiful the town has been. There's still such a strong sense of a very beautiful town, different Periods of history mirrored in the architecture, wonderful intact Georgian buildings, still a pleasure to walk through. But there's dereliction too, with many of its fine old buildings now empty and sagging. There's even an entire modern shopping quarter boarded up and empty, awaiting an uncertain fate. It's not an old street, uh, purpose built, modern buildings, you know, a variety of uh, shapes, colours. Vivid to the eye, it was obviously designed carefully. Oranges, pinks, pale blues, creams. On Gladstone Street, beside the abandoned shopping arcade, my eye is caught by an architectural delight. A Georgian building, formerly Larkin's Hotel, rescued from decay and beautifully reimagined as Fennessy's Hotel. Inside the door, glorious wallpaper, old prints, Nubian-style statues and original stairs and wooden banisters lovingly restored by Esther Fennessy and her husband Richard, a former librarian. That's right. Um, My husband came home one day and he said to me, will we buy Larkins? And I said, no, it's a dump. I'm not going to sell my house for it. It was a Delerick building. And you were running in B&B at that point? Oh, we were running a B&B up at the Mountain Road. And we had, we had chickens, three sheep, two goats and everything else to go with them. Well, I know, I remember my parents and family in general, they weren't, didn't agree with us at all. Just, and you wouldn't blame them. That was a them. mad idea. A mad yeah. idea. And what, what sort never. of condition was it in? Oh, it was terrible. Boards in the floor. There was no floor left no hardly floor inside hardly. here in, in the bar. The whole back of the hotel had been pulled down. 
and the old Celtic Tiger had just about come into town at that stage. So we were and we were standing out there at the front doorstep. <laughs> and I gave Esther a hoist onto his back. And I hopped up <laughs> behind her. And we stayed with that. We stayed with that for about eight years. About eight years. And by then we had our mortgage paid back in the place. We might go up. I know there's a beautiful dining Bingo. room upstairs. Yeah, just we might just go up and, and have a look at that. That's just on the first floor. Now... Love this banister. It's, you, yeah. Oh, it's lovely. Oh, just tell you something about the banister. Just please stop here for a minute. There was a gentleman came in with a, a, a solicitor one day. He wanted to see the place because he really thought that maybe he'd buy it from us. Did he ask, did he ask if he wanted to sell it? He asked. No, yeah, he did. He asked what to sell. He said, "I'm putting in a nightclub." And the first thing I have to tear up is the beautiful George and stairwell with well, mahogany. He just said the old oh. stairs, he said. Oh, yeah. The old Stip stairs, and we were horrified. Horrified. You know? <laughs> we were horrified at the idea of he wanting to have a nightclub. Of course, and, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. And then we... We, um, we opened up the bar only. That Stip built the rest Stip of it. You built yeah. up from the bar level. Stip we'll go into the dining room. Right. and uh, Just here. Yeah. And as you see, the old staircase is the whole way up. Ah, yeah, it's wonderful. It was falling down when we first saw it. I usually have old tea rooms in here, but then the oh. guests like the bigger cups and that, so they, they change the table. And ah, it's that. lovely. It's a lovely room. Yeah, Esther, you have a great eye. You oh. did this yourself, didn't you? <laughs> I did. These lovely I pale, did. pale blues, whites, the beautiful ceilings. Esther has the great eye, but we have to do the, the work. <laughs> man will work. Oh, we have I'd to say you work, work hard too, as well. Oh, I oh, do. She does. I yeah. do. I, uh, oh, this man, this man is a typical still librarian. He walks yeah. around and he comes back yeah. when it's all done. Yeah. Uh, and he's yeah. as bad in the house uh. as he is in the hotel. So, so we I know, I know too that if the whole thing had come flop, I would be the one to be blamed for the rest of my days. <laughs> so that's for me. Well, on. But for me as well, you know, passing by, and I thought, what a beautiful hotel, what a wonderful front. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to come in. And it's especially when you see other buildings in the town that are empty yeah. and falling down as and disappear was. as yours was. And you think you were able to do this with this building yeah. and restore and save and an historic hotel. Too. We had little Thanks money very, at very the time. Much. And it was, so, it was always a happy house since yeah. we came here. I'll sing a song about Clonmel, just a verse or two. Oh, farewell, farewell, my native town that settles in the vale, where Slevenamon looks proudly down on wooded hill and vale. I love strong place I've there will see five times and sing holy well. It's church and it's tree I'd him and see when leaving rare Clonmel. Or thy mountain walks I'll ne'er forget. You're listening to the County Measure, and we're in County Tipperary. In the lovely, rich pastoral landscapes of North Tipperary, not far from Loch Derg, Beautiful hedgerows, woodbine everywhere, hazel, blackberry coming out. And these beautiful arches of, of trees across some of the roads. Wonderful landscape. We're going to meet a woman who has had strong connections to this landscape for all her life, even though she grew up in London. And Siobhan McGowan has just published her second novel. For writer Siobhan McGowan, childhood journeys to Carney Commons in County Tipperary with her parents and her brother Shane were hugely formative. She has been living in North Tipperary for almost 30 years and I met her on the shores of Loch Derg near the broad majestic Shannon. So I've brought you down to the lakeside now. As you can see the beautiful Clare Hills there in the background actually and the ducks and the swans and the gulls all commune together here which is a, a template for world peace, I think. No, because they're, they're brilliant. I love watching them. They just kind of get on together and they're pecking away and feeding. It's just so beautiful and peaceful. 
you used to come with your family mm. from London uh, almost every year, maybe oh, twice, every year, year, twice, maybe twice year. a year. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yourself and Shane, yeah. your brother Shane McGann, famous songwriter, singer. Yeah. So this whole place and tip really, really special to you? Oh, well, absolutely. My mother was raised, my father's a Dubliner, and my mother was from here in Tipperary. And uh, we came every year, as you say, and went to her old homestead, which was a, it's a now a 300-year-old cottage. It's still in the family. Just absolutely beautiful, magical place. Songing, dancing, songing, <laughs> new word, folks. <laughs> songing, dancing. And uh, some of the neighbours, you see, there were sparks flying from the floor. Like on a Sunday night, the old sparks would be flying from the floor. Creative sparks. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great old place. Great what a, old what place. A, what a brilliant experience for a kid. Yeah. Coming oh, from London. We were out in the fields like till 11 at night, cause the summer nights, you see. And it was safe. But then six o'clock every evening was the rosary. And Auntie Nora used to come and uh, she'd go, Shane, Siobhan. And there was an old stone wall and we ducked down, like, you know. Actually, that's mentioned in the Broad Majestic Shannon. Ducked down behind the stone wall and hide, you see. But in the end, they would not give up and we had to, like, trudge across, like, you know. So, yeah, so there was a lot of, a lot of times there at that house, a lot. Was that part of the draw that, that brought you back? Well, I mean, I, I think there's no doubt that I always felt totally Irish. Like, you know, I know my accent is not. So I always felt, I always felt a huge pull. And I, I remember actually saying to Dad when I was 12, I said, I will go back and live in Ireland, you know, Dad. So, uh, so we always laugh about that. So, but yes, it was, it was a huge pull. And the, the funny thing is, I always remember what was beautiful when we did come back to Tick was everybody used to say, welcome home, which I always thought was beautiful. Antoine, you, you've just published your, your second novel, mm. The Graces. When did you know that you wanted to be a An writer? Author. From about seven, I had an image of myself putting a picture, a book up on it, had my name on the spine. Books were huge in our house. Writing was huge. Like myself and Shane used to write and draw all the time. And actually, when we were coming over to Tip, we used to sit in the back of the car because we get Hollywood Ferry at that time. We put a blanket over us and we'd both be scribbling and writing and drawing. And Mum always said we were the easiest children in the world because we were so self-contained. That's all we did. And we read. And The Graces, then, I know, has a strong strain of, I suppose, the power of premonition mm-hmm. running through it. Mm. Is that something that was there in, in your family? Mm. In The Graces, a lot of the first parts where... Rosaline Moore is in Clare is actually based on the house that I'm talking about and all my aunts and uncles in the house. And in the book, Rosaline's grandmother has a premonition of her youngest son dying. That is actually a true story handed down through generations of my great-grandmother, Margaret Lynch, who had woke in the night with a terrible, terrible foreboding and blackness around her and she just knew she was in terrible fear for her son Tommy, her younger son Tommy and she went down to him and she begged him to stay close to the house, she didn't know what was going to happen he laughed it off, he was 17 and my family had a thrashing machine which was quite a big deal in those days and they went around to all the local farms and Tommy went with his brothers with the thrashing machine and of course it was within weeks that he stepped out in front of the, the rotating wheel, got caught in it and died instantly and they said that Granny, Great Granny went out into the fields and wailed and wailed and wailed. And those stories are very strong and have been handed down and they appear in, in the graces. It's great that you have achieved you know, what you imagined as a child, seeing your name on a book. Is there immense satisfaction in yeah. that? Yeah, I actually said recently that uh, getting my first publishing deal and getting my first book published felt like coming home, like somewhere I always wanted to be and that I had been trying to get to for so long. So it had this complete sense of contentment and fulfilment and I'd actually done what I'd been striving to do for so long. So you're home in many ways, you're home here in Tip, you're home in your creative life, good place to be. Yeah, it really is good now at the moment, like, you know. My dear mother died, like, six years ago. And as she was getting older, I said to her, Mum, I said, you know, you know, I I wanted to be a writer so long. I said, what if you go before I achieve it? I said, you won't know. And she said, well, first of all, I will know. And second, she said, I do know. 
So I feel that even though she's not here to see it, she knew already. I remember a Tipperary of half a century ago, the cottage where my mother was reared, surely magical, for although it housed my granny and her eleven siblings, it never seemed cramped. Arriving from the ferry, huddled in the car, dawn not yet broken, peering eagerly up the narrow road of hedgerows to where my great-uncle John waited at the silver-painted metal gates, winding open to reveal the cottage windows lit in anticipation, the black bicycles stacked against the thick white walls, dogs awoken and barking as I ran into the kitchen, engulfed by the smell of wood and turf burning in its hearth, the width of the stone floor, and a gabble of greetings from my aunts and uncles. Under the peat roof, the long table resplendent in flowery plastic, laden with striped cups and saucers, Auntie Nora's brown cake bread, tomatoes, ham and gouty cheese. For this bread, Auntie Nora would have suffered, limping with a gigantic sack of Odlum's flour at her arthritic hip, her apron dress hiding a hem not raised since the 30s, her brothers in shirts and braces lifting their caps to wink. Around this table, Auntie Ellen would swing her concertina, Uncle Jim sing Sleeve No Morn and the neighbours dance. There'd be sparks flying from the floor, one record years later. At this table too, I'd kneel on the hard chair to say the rosary after evening Angelus, and come Sunday morning catch Uncle John in his sleeved vest and long johns shaving at a basin, face shining brightly as his shoes for mass. Outside church, a chorus of welcome homes, coins pressed into my palm, a fortune to spend on eclair sweets and red lemonade at the post office, travelled to on pony and trap, the waft of straw in my nostrils, bottom bruised from the bumps. The cockcrow waking me beside my mother in the parlour, chickens squawking and scurrying over the yard for their feed, the sook-sook call to the cattle, jam jars laced with cruel jam to lure wasps to a watery grave. Memories all. And handkerchiefs raised to cry, the holy water bottle raised to shower us with divine protection on our journey back to a land that was not only a sea, but a world away. Coming up on The County Measure, Measuring Stone at Holy Cross, new music from Jerry Banjo O'Connor, a view from below at the Rock of Cashel, an outdoor art trail, and piping the past and future. Urban Aaron make vibrant, soft merino knitwear right here in Ireland. It looks great. This is radio, so you just have to trust us. They send their pieces all over Ireland. And they save up to €76 on parcel labels with their on-post commerce advantage card. It gives great discounts to your business. It also looks pretty great. Get your advantage card at onpost.com slash advantage card to save on every stamp you stick and every parcel you send. OnPost Commerce. A world closer. T's and C's apply. There's still time to book that holiday to France with Stena Line. Travel Rossler to Cherbourg from €199 one-way, car and driver. Travel in comfort at a time that suits you, with more sailings to France and Britain than ever before. Book now at StenaLine.ie. Wherever you're going, enjoy getting there with Stena Line. Travelling in, in Tipperary, you, you're struck by the architecture, by all the, the castles, the towers, the ruins. It's so beautiful in the landscape. And then side by side often with quarries, you're reminded of the power of stone in this place. 
Of course, there's a, a link in mythology and folklore in Tipperary, as in other parts of the country, to the, the, the mythical builder, the Gobon Ser, who's supposed to have built most of the, the famous castles and famous buildings around the country, and some indeed in Tip. But this morning we're on the, our way to meet, in a way, a modern Gobon Ser worker in stone, one of the best known in the county and who's made many public monuments in in Tipperary, a man called Philip Quinn. Philip Quinn lives and works in Holy Cross, one of the loveliest spots in Ireland. The restored Holy Cross Abbey, one of the great treasures of our country. Are we right for Philip Quinn? You're not? No. You're very near him. I thought we were. You're very near him. Go up to the junction here go yeah. and, and keep left uh-huh. and it's, okay. it's only a hundred yards up Brilliant. We'll from try the, yeah. and, uh, great to see great to see men working with bees we'll fumigate everybody in <laughs> good no harm <laughs> kind of a bee benediction <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> enjoy your day you yes. too yeah. and sure enough we meet Philip Quinn 100 yards away at the end of a lush boring Talking about you. How are you doing? Yeah. How are you, Keith? Good. Great spot. Ah, oh, sir. Yes. The entire area around Philip's family house is something of a living outdoor gallery. A slab of black or pink stone here, a block of wood there with the shape of a huge dog emerging, a big open-plan workspace or studio where materials get shaped, sawn, carved, where making happens as naturally as breathing. And, Philip, did you grow up here? No, I grew up in Killinall. It's about 11 miles south of here. Like you were talking about the Gabon Sayre, my longest memory, apart from one of them when my father was tying my shoelace and telling me I'd be able to do it when I was older, was uh, frying mushrooms and stones down at what we used to call it the Gabon Sayre's Island. But we go down in September or, so, or August and pick mushrooms and heat the stones. And um, that's where the Gabon Sayre's was to be buried. So maybe it was the mushrooms I was eating then that kind of, <laughs> that sounds very wrong. <laughs> no, but the, anyway, the right kind the of right, magic, right yeah, kind yeah, of magic lovely, went in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. What has struck me being here in the last while is just, you know, the beauty of the stone. You're looking oh, at yeah. the churches, the abbeys, the castles, the towers, the ruins, and I think, Jesus, this all came out of the land here, oh, and it's it's this extraordinary heritage in Tipperary. Oh, it's lovely. Like, it, I suppose the abbey over across the field from us here, that came out of the the quarry that's just up as you turn in our gate above. And then the sand for to mix with the lime mortar came from out in the fields here. You can see the humps and hollows and they're all poached. And when we were building the shed here, it was all sand underneath. So they really, they had everything here. The monks knew what they were doing, you know. And what would, is it mainly limestone around here? Mainly limestone around here. There's, there is some lovely sand sandstone in tip but uh, they're really lovely sandstone and up near Rosgrey above there, there's lovely sandstone and back up say Cormac's Chapel is sandstone inside in, in the rock of Cashel inside the one that they repaired or restored they didn't repair like, but and Philip was there a tradition of masonry in, in your family no no all of my say my father has had a pub and a grocery my brother and his wife run it now in Killinall and uh there was a forge in the yard then my father had a gunsmith's as well so we had bits of guns lying around so we put them together so it's all stuff so that you're making hands. all the time making yeah yeah always making stuff my choy pieces inside mm. I, well I have pieces mm. on the go there and we'd have big I just work under a tent mainly you know I put up a tent over this and when you see the fossil in some of the stone when you crack it then oh, it oh just you find beautiful stuff yeah. yeah the life in it you know but yeah uh, there's a, I was just going to draw this piece out since we're on the shore. Mm. This big stone here is actually from Quinn and Clare, and it's a lighter colour than the Kilkenny. Like I normally get my stone from Jim Harding in Gorn. Beautiful marble quarry there. It's the it black a marble. Beautiful soft grey. Oh, lovely gorgeous. soft grey. But um, <laughs> that's the biggest salmon caught in Ireland in 1872. It was f- uh, four foot and a quarter of an inch. <laughs> a man called Michael Maher caught it with uh, a fly called the Wonder. 
And this whole piece is in memory of a man called Owen Jackman in Golden, below down on the banks of the river. He was involved in the tidy towns down there and in on the river. And he asked on about, the shore, on the shore, the river shore. He just loved the shore, you know. And of course, there's a lovely echo as well of the salmon of knowledge. In oh yeah, just, yeah, yeah, sure. Any the first thing you think of is just yeah, yeah the, to see. Oh God, yeah, the size of it. So you'd have a fair bit of work around the county in different spots. Oh in yeah, tip. yeah, in Tip, all yeah. loads of very lucky we do I, I do workshops in lots of different places and from the schools to the prisons to yeah so I you're do, linked into the, in very much into the community and into, oh completely yeah, yeah with everything like, yeah you'd see people that would never have picked up a hammer or a chisel in their lives and one man said to me he made a bowl here one time he said that he had gone through about a year of really being down and everything else and that when he sees this full of water outside his door it's as if he's full it's a beautiful material, like anything with your hands. Yeah. So you're, you're constantly so, working? Oh, the whole time, yeah. I'm sure people think I do nothing. But I could be sitting here in the yard on a crate, as I was there one evening when my wife came in and I was a cup of coffee in my hand and I was looking down at the Fionn McCool wondering where he was going to go, the piece we just to be able to get a crane to yeah. move him. But yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so you're still constant, yeah, working, oh, no, but contemplating. Like, yeah. Keep contemplating. Sure, most yeah. of the work is done in your head anyway. Why do we talk... We're joined by two robins. Oh, the little robins, the two of them that keep us company over the winter. They'd come in and while I'm hammering at the stone, they'd stand on the stone. So he's coming into the kitchen all the time. And, and sit on the half door. Yeah, sometimes. sit on the half door or up on the kitchen table. Though. I was there one morning and I was on my own and I had a dog on each chair and the robin on the table. It's just lovely. Like, they're just beautiful. I don't know. See, someone's soul. I don't know who he is. Oh, he could be, like when you look at him. Indeed. He's so raggedy, isn't he? Beautiful. He's a gas little lad. The names here are beautiful. Tipperary has 12 baronies, old Tudor-era land divisions with names as memorable as the 12 apostles. Clan William, Ellie Ogarty, Iffa and Offa, East and West, Icaran, Kilnamana, Lore and Upper, Lore Ormond, Middle Third, Oni and Ara, Schlieve Arda and Upper Ormond. Bird Hill is a lovely village in the barony of Oni and Ara. Its old Irish name, Knock on Ain Inn, the Hill of the Fair Bird. And many a fair bird and animal scene from nature can be seen in the impressive outdoor art exhibition, part of the Pollo walking trail beside the Shannon, and the brainchild of Melissa Ryan. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Melissa. Nice to meet you. Vincent, great to meet you. Yeah. Melissa herself is an artist and got the idea during COVID as a boost for people isolated during lockdown. These large and vibrant original works from artists of all ages and abilities are displayed along the two and a half kilometre trail. The artworks themselves are um, painted on Malaysian pine. It's a hardwood, so it's purpose for outdoor buildings. We got a piece that was three metres by a metre and a half. So we cut them in half and we ended up with two squares of 1.5 by 1.5 metres, which is great because then the paintings are so big that as you're walking down the trail, you feel like you're immersing yourself into them. So the artworks themselves then are pretty weatherproof. They're all weatherproof, yeah. And the theme this year then... So the theme this year is Stay Wild and I thought it'd be really nice, especially for the professional artists, if they were landscape artists or um, still life artists, that they could put their own influence into the pieces. So Stay Wild is very open to to all artists. They're so vivid. I mean, just a quick, this initial walk. It's the pieces are so striking, so colourful. They're really wonderful. Trish Taylor-Thompson is one of the local artists whose work is displayed here. Trish, as a local professional artist, this must be a wonderful initiative. Well, it is, and we're also used to using A4 paper throughout our lives, and then suddenly Melissa has us working on huge, big pieces. <laughs> I'm in awe of the children, who are much smaller than the, the, you know, the huge, big boards. So it's lovely to have a theme, because that focuses the mind. I painted the piece there to your right, essentially me and three of my buddies jumping into the the water so there's a stylized aspect to it 
with the focus on the energy of us jumping in and that for me is the wildness that I experience every morning in, in lockdown. It's beautiful I mean the piece beautiful because you've got these two layers or levels of blue yes. kind of the blue of the sky the pale blue of the sky the darker blue of the water the energy of the four of you jumping in and then this shot from the bottom of nature of daisies of the earth it's, it's gorgeous. Thank you yeah we, I've called it daisy days it could have been crazy daisy days <laughs> but that just seemed like a bit of a mouthful. Melissa's daughter, Chloe, filled her canvas with a striking close-up of a human eye. I kind of just did it because I thought people, different people look at nature in different kind of ways and I just thought an eye could be like how people look at nature. It's great because you've got this part of a face, an eye, a very, very blue iris, very striking lashes (laughs) and a gorgeous pink flower with a kind of yellow centre and an eyebrow. An eyebrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> an all-important eyebrow. Need that. <laughs> yeah. Lucy Cray, who's just 10, also has a painting on display. Lucy, tell me what we're looking at in your painting. It's just like a sloth that is meditating. <laughs> a meditating <laughs> sloth. I love it. It looks like a very serene and happy meditating sloth as well. Do you paint much, Lucy? Yeah, I do. I like to paint animals. So, mm. Yeah. You're very talented. Thank you. How long will the exhibition be up, as yeah. it were? Well, it's up till the 1st of September. We wait till the kids go back to school so that everybody has turn to come over the, the couple of months to, to view it. It's nice to connect communities. That's what we really aim to do, is, is just make everything accessible to everybody at every level. My name is Gerry O'Connor and I was born and raised in County Tipperary near the beautiful village of Gary Kennedy on the shores of Loch Derg on the banks of the River Shannon. My grandfather, Michael Kennedy, who lived with us at the time, played the fiddle, but he was also a carpenter, boat builder and a keen fisherman. And I have memories starting out to play music, of going into the back room and trying to pick up little melodies, songs and the odd polka that he would play on the fiddle. And just as I have the moniker as Jerry Banjo O'Connor, in turn my grandfather was known locally as Michael the Caddy Kennedy. I have fond memories of strolling the countryside and fishing on the lake with my grandfather. There could only ever be one title for this tune. I simply call it Walking with the Caddy. You're listening to The County Measure, and we're in County Tipperary. Templemore is now best known as home to the Garda Training College, but the town itself is a fine example of a planned market town, with what's believed to be the widest market square in Ireland. Architect Valerie Mulvin featured an early aerial photograph of Templemore on the cover of her fine book, Approximate Formality, on the history and development of Irish towns. We meet her on the square within sight of the old town hall and completely surrounded by parked cars. So this, to me, was a real exponent of what I was interested in, in looking at towns, because so many of them in Ireland are planned. And the the important thing is that the square is, I suppose, framed by all these beautiful walls and buildings and sheds and streets which make the the space that that people made for markets. So that was really a kind of a great starting point for me for the book. And of course now the square, in a sense, is almost wrecked by all the cars. Yes. It's everywhere, cars parked and cars driving and it's almost difficult to see what's here. Yes, I think you're right and there are attempts and I know the local authority are really trying very hard to uh, kind of do things like inverted commas soften 
the uh, edges of the square but in fact what's really great about it is this incredible strong big rectangular square very clear if this was in France or Portugal or Italy it would have small cafes out on the square the cars would have disappeared because it would have been pedestrianised there would be a lovely paved surface instead of the tarmac and the road markings but unfortunately in Ireland we seem to be afraid of space and every time we see a space everyone says okay we should make a car park out of it and I just can't understand why we can't just think about this a little bit more, get the traffic off the, off the square and make it into the lovely communal space it should be. Because, you know, we have, the, like so many towns in Tipperary and indeed around the country, Templemore is full of derelict buildings, like this beautiful old Grocers and Spirits, John Marr, here on the square. And it's boarded up, empty, and it just seems like a crying shame. It does. And doesn't it seem like an absolutely mad shame when we have a a housing crisis at the moment? Like I I did a little bit of looking at uh, the development plan for the town, for example. And according to that, there are 22 derelict properties on this square alone. And this is one of them. And you can imagine this beautiful grocery, which has a ground floor with a grocery one side, a bar the other side, and then overhead two storeys of very nicely um, ruled and lined plaster facade with little mouldings around the windows, all boarded up, and the, the gorgeous um, ironwork across the windows, which would have been, of course, to keep the cattle away from the glass on a market day. But these fantastic buildings are capable of so many uses. Like, you could imagine this being bought by two families, divided into two houses. People could just come and live here. There's a whole instant environment, a complete place where people can be. There's a community. And although there are people living in the town, you can see that uh, from the windows, there are so many properties that are empty. And such potential. Look at this great window display of old Guinness bottling labels from Templemore pubs. And a site notice, Planning Commission for Residential Development on this site. Well now, can I just say though, it actually says the proposed development consists of dismantling and removal of the three-level shop, residence, out-offices, walls, boundary walls to the laneway. I mean, it's very nice that there is a voluntary housing association looking to put in uh, housing for people here. But what I don't understand is why they can't use what's here already. The most sustainable building you can make is the one that you already have. And people can say, oh, it's too expensive. It's no more expensive than making a new building. And also, as you demolish a building, the amount of tonnes of carbon you release into the atmosphere is astonishing. So that's one of the reasons why we have to stop demolishing buildings and keep this wonderful street line and reuse what we have. Just coming into the park and get a glimpse of Templemore Lake just on our left. Behind the market square is Templemore's fine Lakeland Park and near the ruins of Champlemore, the big church that gives the town its name, we enjoy another chance meeting. How are you? How are you <laughs> What are you doing today? Uh, we're celebrating 60 years today. Thomas McDonough Pipe Band. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. So the they band's been in existence for 60 years? 60 years, yeah. Ah, amazing. There's one man in charge now. He's been there from the very start. Fantastic. Yeah, so if it wasn't for him, Joe Barry. Yeah, oh, so. so 1963 start. 63, yeah. 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 And when did you join? I joined t- March 2015, St. Patrick's Day 2015. Yeah. And what what drew you in? Um, my band is just <laughs> great sound in the town, and they're well known. And it's yeah. just been. It's and where are you playing today? I'm veiling a bench and come down here to look where it is, but <laughs> it's around here somewhere. Okay. So, um, it's on later on. I'll be on for a couple of hours. Yeah. So. so the bench is t- to mark the the mark band of the sixty years. years. The band, yeah, and there's a couple more bands coming down, or representatives of the bands coming down as well to help us celebrate. And oh, fantastic. Yeah. And what's your name? My name's Kieran Byrne. Yeah, I'm from Kieran, it's nice
take um and take we can really eat strawberries on <laughs> foot of the rock of Cashel, I stopped to buy strawberries from a man selling fruit and veg outside his house at the edge of the busy road. <laughs> Philly Fitzgerald grew up here in the shadow of the rock and he knows practically every crack and crevice of it. This is my mother's house here and uh, I gave up my business for five years, just over five years. She got dementia. So, uh, I said I wouldn't put it in a home, and she didn't want to go into a home. And we started off selling, we used to do that all our life, you see. So I said to bring back a memory, I started selling strawberries and wicks from new for So I brought back a man, she'd sit out here, like, there's a photo of her there, no? Ah. She used to sit outside. She used to sit outside here now. And, ah, that is a great photo. And we ate our dinner, the That's new fantastic. potatoes. Ah, Jesus, brilliant. When would that have been? Oh, that was about, what? That's about nearly three and a half years ago. Ah. Ah. And all the signs. It was American that was over the other side of the road. Helen Flynn, was that, that That's yeah. my sister. That's she died now about sister. a year and a half ah. ago, yeah. She got married at 15 years of age. I did not. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Of course, that was it, yeah. She was that, married 50 right. years. Wow. And she died about a week ah. after, after being ah, married 50 right. years. And what age was your mother when she 89. died? 89. I got it. Just died before COVID. When she was leaving away, she was, was well to get out. Because you know? if it if put her into home... Ah, yeah, it would have been terrible. We couldn't call you in and you can't go yeah, in. No, and also oh, to, be, to have that kind of lockdown so, and she'd have hated it. I say, uh, God took her just in the right time. What was it like then, growing up, we'll say, this close to the Rock of Cash, like having that extraordinary place on your doorstep? Well, I can tell you one thing. granted. If I, if I had a euro for every American pulled in here, how do you get to the castle? <laughs> it's very badly signposted around here. Very badly signposted. And would would you have played up around there when you were alive? I did. Many times I fell down, <laughs> fell, fell down it. There. I was in this. The time you said that the weather was snowy, you know, that we'd slide down there and. and and bags, plastic bags, and to bring them. Brilliant. And we used to get weather that time. But it's going well up there. It's nice to see it. It's nice. Ah, yeah, it's great. And, and when the Queen came and himself sure. came, it, yeah. it boosted even of more. Of course like. it did. It yeah. did. Oh, it did. It was yeah. very good. Yeah. It was very good. And they blocked yeah. off our street here that yeah. time. So even when I had to go for a pint, yes, <laughs> <laughs> they'd be searching to come and down. Yeah? You think they'd be carrying a bomb or something? Uh, yeah, no, she'd have enjoyed buying a few beds <laughs> from you. Oh, she won't. She won't. We won't see the selling. She'd inspect yeah. the she'd inspect the produce. You know. She landed there. Sleeve na mon, knock na gao, gluon mala, corrig na shura. Tipperary's landscapes make a map of language and poetry running into music. The women's mountain, the hill of goats, the meadow or vale of honey, the rock of the river shore. Real and imagined, the county's places hold and evoke so much of the past and offer clear signposts for the future, so long as we have the will and imagination to read those signs. This county could easily hold at least two measures of wandering and scrutiny, and that's not just to follow the old divisions of North and South Ridings, North and South Tip. We didn't make it to Ballyporeen, where next year locals might or might not choose to commemorate the 1984 visit of US President Ronald Reagan to his ancestral home. A lot of history through the Shore and Nore and Shannon since then. County Measure with Vincent Woods is part of our decade of centenary celebrations here on RTE Radio 1. The programme was produced by Colette Kinsida and the researcher was Simon O'Gallachor. For any suggestions for the series on your county, please email county at rte.ie.